It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Rachel Campos Duffy. I'm Jason Chaffetz. I'm Maria Bartiromo, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, January 1st, 2024. I'm Lisa Brady. Strength in numbers, a different approach to homelessness that appears to be helping around one U.S. city. There's not a a magic answer, but together um, we are choosing to, to focus on one direction, one North Star that... You know, all in all, all the resources are going to move in this direction. I'm Dana Perino, a small country with a big story. Israel finds itself in a war they say is existential. A new book explains how Israeli society projects cohesion and resilience against all odds. Because in Israel, obviously they have deep political division and we talk a lot about that in the book. But it doesn't come at the expense of of feeling like a sense of community with your fellow citizens. And I'm Jason Rance. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Soaring rents and declining pandemic assistance are sharing much of the blame for a jump in homelessness in the U.S., up 12 percent to more than 650,000 people, the highest level ever reported by the Department of Housing and Urban Development in a yearly point-in-time survey that began in 2007. The report that came out by HUD is aligned with what we're seeing here locally in Chicago. Cheryl Hamilton-Hill, director of Lincoln Park Community Services, says they too have seen a significant increase in homelessness, and her program may not have the money to continue operations. San Francisco, with its encampments getting perhaps the most attention over the past year. California Governor Gavin Newsom has said his state hasn't made progress in the last two decades. Housing costs are too high. Our regulatory thickets are too problematic. Localism has been too impactful. The executive director of one federal agency on the issue says pandemic relief, including stimulus payments, aid to state and local governments and an eviction moratorium, helped hold off the rise in homelessness. But in Reno, the numbers were rising before the pandemic. And they've taken a different approach to the problem, joining forces with neighbors to create the CARES campus. We began seeing some pretty steep increases around 2018 during our point in time count. Dana Searcy is division director of Washoe County Housing and Homeless Services in Nevada. And at that time, a regional board was set up with elected officials from the city of Reno and Sparks and also Washoe County to take a look at what could be done. But through that pandemic, we continue to see our numbers increase quite a bit, tripling over 2018 uh, and 19 in the unsheltered um, population and into 2020. So during that time, watching these numbers grow, coupled with the effects of the pandemic and the need to be able to socially distance so many individuals needing shelter, the cities and the county came together and pooled a lot of resources and said, we're, we're going to address this quickly. So they purchased 15 acres of land just outside of, of downtown Reno. And within 85 days, we're able to uh, have this sprung structure erected. It's, it's 42,000 square feet. And we had space to socially distance 600 individuals, which was a 
a very large step up from the current shelter that had capacity uh, for about 200. So the initial outlay was just over $17 million. And then over the past two years now, we've been working through the design and development and, and now construction of what we've called phase two and three at that campus, which has been funded through one, a collaboration between City of Reno and Sparks and Washoe County, but also at the federal level with a $12 million federal appropriation. And we received $22 million um, from the state of Nevada for a permanent supportive housing project on that site. So in total, we're looking at $95 million to get this campus where we are going to be happy that it's providing the services that we need. Why does this feel like it's different than other efforts around the country historically to try and address homelessness? I mean, there was a Wall Street Journal headline that said Reno is solving homelessness. (laughs) Um, Is that how it's been received? You know, it's definitely not been an easy road. I think, um, you know, getting everyone on board has really been the key for us. I think as I talk to many other communities and, you know, no one has the answer. There's not a a magic answer. But together, um, we are choosing to, to focus on one direction, one North Star that you know, all in all, all the resources are, are going to move in this direction. We're going to collect data in a central database. We're assessing individuals in a standardized way um, to determine who needs what type of housing and how can we make that happen as, as quickly as possible. And we've tried to stay very nimble and be able to change. And so while we never intended to have behavioral health staff at the campus, we saw the huge need And so the county invested in a team of six behavioral health counselors that now have been at the campus over a year. And we're seeing that that is is a a game changer for us. I mean, certainly mental health issues, addiction issues, that goes along with homelessness um, a significant amount of the time, right? These services, those efforts, they go, they, they sort of come as part of the CARES campus is the goal to, you know, bring someone, what happens when someone initially gets to the campus? Do you do an assessment and is the goal always to have them not stay there, you know, forever, but to move on into temporary housing and then hopefully permanent housing while accessing all the other services they might need? Absolutely. So, you know, traditionally what we hope is people come into the shelter, we quickly assess needs, and and again, fairly quickly, we're moving you out into those housing programs and whether they're temporary programs with um, sobriety treatment or those types of things or a permanent housing option appropriate for each person, that movement is, is hopefully very swift. Um, In our region, we have not had the permanent housing options. We know that that is lagging behind. And and while we're working to address that, meanwhile, we have, you know, over 600 individuals inside our CARES campus. And so we've brought these resources to go alongside people while they're making their journey through this process. And so while maybe traditionally 80% or so of that those services and, and that treatment is, is occurring outside the campus, once you've moved on from shelter into housing, we're really addressing it 
in real time at the campus if needed. And so when you first come in, yes, we're doing a standard assessment. We're assessing what benefits you might be eligible for. Um, you've got a case manager assigned to you. And then through that process, we're doing everything that we can to help stabilize and connect you to resources while you're there waiting for that housing option to come up. So we've got lots of connections with our medical providers. As we said, we've got behavioral health on site. And it is this delicate balance because we didn't want the campus to function as a place with all services so everyone would come and want to stay there. And so while that initial work is happening inside the campus, we're quickly getting you connected to outside nonprofits and resources so we can teach you how to use the services that are available in the community, not necessarily within the campus. There have been some critics. One county commissioner has likened this to just warehousing people. You know, do the numbers reflect that the bigger issue of homelessness is being addressed by this approach? Because obviously, you know, you've kind of made note of the fact affordable housing remains an issue. It's not just an issue in the Reno area. It's an issue around the country. Yes. You know, I would say that the initial phase of this campus was about creating enough space to socially distance people. It was not about all of the services needed. But the intent and the conversation in the community was never to stop at that place. Uh, I think the reality is that it takes a lot of time to develop this entire vision. Um, we, you know, a hundred million dollar project just about that. That takes a lot of time in development and, and the public process can be time consuming also. Um, our numbers do not support that we are just warehousing people. Uh, over the past year, we have permanently housed close to 500 individuals out of the CARES campus. Um, as a region, we have also seen quite a decrease in the last um, just year, if we're looking at that, we've reduced um, homelessness through our single adult population by 18%. Chronically homeless is down 32%. And our veteran homeless population is down 22%. And that is only year over year numbers from November. So when we zoom back out and we're sharing this data, we're really seeing that we're moving things in the right direction. How do you keep people safe on the campus and are there strings attached to be there? In other words, you know, job work requirements or at least job application requirements or treatment requirements? Yeah, so safety is obviously a, a big piece of this. Uh, it is a low barrier shelter. So there are no rules about whatever has happened before you come to the campus. When you come in, uh, essentially the only thing that, that we are looking at is one, can you perform your activities of daily living and, and take care of yourself? And two, uh, can you be on this campus without hurting yourself or, or anybody else? Um, there's lots of safety protocols in place. One of the biggest changes we made was we, we do have metal detectors and bag scanners on site. We do have a security on site 24 hours a day um, and, a, and a camera system. And, and we make sure that we maintain appropriate staffing levels. So that's a one to 25 ratio on the frontline staff um, side of, of the campus. And then as far as our case managers go, it's a one to 30. What we've done at this campus is say after 30 days, 
you're intended to have a, a housing plan put together. And each 30 days after that, you need to make progress towards that plan. And that looks different for each person. And those case managers are working on those individual plans to make sure that they make sense and, and are appropriate. But as long as you're making progress, you're welcome to stay at the campus. The big question is, can this approach be replicated in other places? Could it maybe be successful in a city like San Francisco, for instance? I think that it can. I think it's not so much about the specifics of the campus. You know, I, it's not a secret that many of, of our team staff were, were very concerned about, you know, the, the best practice in the nation that we're seeing is really to spread out shelters into smaller shelters across the community instead of one large campus. So there was a little concern that that we were moving in the wrong direction, but we've been able to take this space and really create different um, unique programs that meet unique needs on the one campus. And I think the most important part of the whole thing, as I mentioned earlier, is that we work very well together. We have about 40 different partners, um, the jurisdictions and the nonprofits. We're meeting multiple times each week and this conversation is continuing. And so when something's not working, we figure out how to address it together and make sure that we're all moving in that direction. And I've said, you know, this is fairly delicate and we've got to take care of it and make sure that we can continue those conversations because that's really what's what's making the progress that we're seeing. Certainly seems to be offering hope, at least um, more broadly on a very painful issue. Dana Searcy, Division Director for the Washoe County Housing and Homeless Services. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Benjamin Hall, Fox News correspondent and New York Times bestselling author. Join me for my brand new podcast, Searching for Heroes. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. This is Jason Rance with your Fox News commentary coming up. The Fox News Rundown has spent a lot of time covering the war in Israel since Hamas terrorists launched a surprise attack on the country, brutally killing Israeli men, women and children and taking more than 200 hostages, including Americans. Just over a month after the October 7th massacre, I spoke with former foreign policy advisor to President George W. Bush, Dan Senor, who wrote a new book, The Genius of Israel. He gave his insights on the war and the subsequent rise of anti-Semitism around the world, telling us what was going through his head when he first heard Israel had been attacked. It's a moving conversation. And now we take you back to November 10th and my interview with Dan Senor from the Fox News Rundown. Shortly after Israel suffered a surprise attack on October 7th by Hamas terrorists, they barely had time to mourn the nearly 1,400 people killed and the hostages taken before entering a state of war. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had this to say at an October press conference in Tel Aviv. Israel is at war. We didn't want this war. It was forced upon us in the most brutal and savage way. But though Israel didn't start this war, 
Israel will finish it. President Biden initially came out with strong support for Israel, vowing that the U.S. stands with its allies, calling Hamas ISIS. But now the war has entered its second month, and as the president's poll numbers slip, young people on college campuses or in major cities are protesting against U.S. support for Israel. Even before the war, Israeli society was grappling with internal strife after their prime minister pushed a plan for a change to its government's judicial system, which sparked massive protests. An Israeli man protesting told Fox's Trey Yinks in July. I want the future in this country. I want peace. I want freedom. Despite Israel's long history of defending itself from nearby enemies who wish to see its nations destroyed, mandatory military service and recent political polarization, the people of Israel appear united and resilient in the face of terrors they've faced and the difficult war ahead of them. So how has Israeli society weathered adversity to come out stronger as a people? I was born in a very Zionist home. So I was born in upstate New York, lived in Canada for a number of years. My mother's a Holocaust survivor. Dan Senor served as a foreign policy advisor under President George W. Bush, host of the Call Me Back podcast and the author of a brand new book called The Genius of Israel. She was hidden as a child by what we call righteous Gentiles, which are non-Jews in Eastern Europe, in Germany during uh, World War II, who hid out Jews to great risk to their own lives did it. In fact, the person who hid my mother out and her mother out had a close encounter because he was hiding out Jews. It's an extraordinary story. Mm. It was a heavy upbringing. My mother's father, my grandfather was killed at Auschwitz. My mother and her mother escaped before the train to Auschwitz, and that's how they got on the run. But how my, old was she? She was a little girl, six, mm-hmm. you know, five, seven wow. years old. So that's what I grew up with on her side. My father, very involved with Zionist activism in the U.S. He was a, like a, a protege of this guy named Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver, who was a big champion for the founding of the state of Israel. And my father had worked on a number of Jewish and, and pro-Israel causes. So this was like, as I said, it was like in the water in my home. Because it was in the water, so to speak, I have two sisters who ultimately made the decision to move to Israel. And they um, have raised children there. Each of them have three kids. One of my sisters has a daughter who's been called up to reserves. Her husband, Saul Singer, is the co-author of our book. My other sister has three sons. Two of the three sons have been called up, plus a grandson, plus a niece. Mm-hmm. So it just gives you a sense of how everyone... So you're in it. In it, you're right. You're in it. And um, so when I do my reporting and an- analysis on your show and mm-hmm. others... I'm bringing to it my analytical lens, but I also have, I'm talking to real people who are like living this. And so I spent, this was, I was sort of raised with this. I studied for a year in Israel uh, at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem when I was in college. I I did some work there. I did some research as an intern for uh, the Chicago Tribune's Middle East Bureau. And then I got interested in Israeli startups. I started investing in Israeli entrepreneurs. And so between all those things, family, business, personal interest, upbringing. It means I'm in Israel about every two or three months. And, you know, I feel very deeply, deeply connected. Quickly, how do you describe it? What does it mean to be a Zionist activist? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's to say you're a Zionist means you believe in the the, the idea that the Jews deserve and need to build a state, which basically in is activist may be redundant, but it just means that I'm mm-hmm. involved in it. I'm, 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 I've been a I've been a voice for defense of the Jewish state, advocacy for the Jewish state, not in any formal way, but right. just in an informal way. I ask only because I feel like there's a lot of terms that yeah. have got yeah. up, and that people are now like, wait, what does it mean from the river to the sea? And now everyone's getting a real education. And yeah. your you have a podcast called Call Me Back. I listened to it before the war. Uh, I love it. I recommended it to everybody. But now I have an insatiable need for more information, and and I can find it there. 
and I want to ask you all about the book, but before I do, because things, the book and its outreach and what it means, I think really, it, it doesn't change the content of the book, but October 7th changes this book yeah, and the approach of, of promoting it, because I just wonder what you were thinking on October 7th. How did you find out that October 7th was going down? Where were you? What was it like? On October 6th, uh, after we do a Friday night dinner, uh, Shabbat dinner, and that was a, that was an especially important day because that was uh, it was a Jewish holiday, it was Simchat mm-hmm. Torah. So a lot of religious Jews who normally would be in services in synagogue for Shabbat, but it's also this added layer of a very important holiday. Um, before I went to bed late that night, I just glanced at my phone just before I crashed, which was late on Friday night, and I saw it on my WhatsApp groups with Israelis, and they're like, "Something's going on," and but I, I discounted it at the time because I thought. Uh, you know, it's just the usual Israel-Gaza skirmish. And, it'll, you know, I just didn't think it was any different than May of 21 or 2000, summer of, of uh, 22 or, I mean, these things pop up and they pop down. I thought it was a version of that. Although, the, in retrospect, the way they were talking, it, it, there was a sense that it was worse than that because it wasn't just rockets being fired. There was something about a land, a border penetration, which just never happened. So I knew at that point it was probably real. And this was different. And then the other way I knew it was really different is, and I haven't talked about this publicly, my sister, who is uh, eight years older than me, lives in Jerusalem. She is completely shuts off of electronic devices on Shabbat from sundown on Friday nights till sundown on Saturday night. She's completely unreachable. And I called her phone, which I would never do. Mm-hmm. I called her cell phone and she answered. And I knew when she answered the phone, mm-hmm. This was serious. And she said when she was, she ran home because she had to get, because all these homes have bomb shelters in Israel. They had to get to these like bomb shelters. And she saw cars whizzing by, which you never see on Shabbat in Israel. She knew they were rushing Mm -hmm. to reserve duty. They were rushing to hospitals. And that all had, when you go back in history, that all had the feel of the 1973 Yom Kippur War when Israel was under siege. One of the things you've said is that Jews feel that they can touch history and shape it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I was wondering about, like even with your sister, is that because you you, you go back and you visit your mom's hometown, but that was, you know, that was the never again. Right. And so your generation, you and your sister and even your children are thinking, well, we have to keep that memory alive. We have to understand the history, but we're never going to have to do that again. Right. Because never again. Right. But now... Here we are. Yeah, I, this, this, that, look, as an analyst of events in the Middle East and Israel, I sort of consider myself sort of a participant and sort of an analyst. But as an analyst, I've always been able to keep a little bit of distance because I know people in harm's way in Israel whenever there's a conflict or whenever there's a security threat. But I'll be honest, like, I don't feel vulnerable. I don't actually feel vulnerable in these situations. I heard all these stories from my mother growing up and my mother was always like very suspicious and very like, you know, and not in a bad way. She came by it honestly, like she'd gone through this incredible trauma and, and even what she did after the war, when she was on the run. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an unbelievable story. This is the first time I have felt vulnerable and being targeted as a Jew, like there was a Jew hunting quality to it now. And, and again, this didn't hit me the first few days after. It's, it's, it's more in the last couple of weeks, this sense that it's weirdly being tolerated. I feel it for you. It's like normalized. 
One of the things you also talk about is that what happens in Israel matters. Yeah. Why does it matter here? Why should people here care? Yeah. So, so Mika Goodman is one of these guys we interview in the book. who's a big public intellectual. He's had a lot of influence on my thinking. And he says that Israel is, in that chapter called Touching History, he says Israel is a small country with a big story. And I love that line. Small yeah, I, country. I, in fact, I wrote it down yeah. here. <laughs> small country with a big story. You have big countries with big stories. The United States is a big country with a big story. China, love it or hate it, <laughs> is a big country with a big story. But you don't have a lot of countries in the world that are small with big stories. In there, you talk about, in America, we have a strong government and a weak society. Right, right. But in Israel, you have a weak government and a strong society. Yeah. And you talk about the cohesiveness that is critical for a healthy society yeah. for, and a healthy and thriving country. What is the lesson here for us in the United States about how we could be a more cohesive society with a strong government as well so that we can do what is needed in the world? Yeah. So there are like two or three things that I hope Americans can take away from this book. And you're zeroing in on one of them. Coming back to Mika Goodman, he tells another story. In 2016, after Trump was elected, he goes to a conference at Harvard. And all these Harvard academics are sitting there talking about the Trump voter. I, I read a study about the Trump voter. I met a Trump. Let me tell you what this Trump voter said. And he's like, are you talking about your fellow citizens? I mean, I get you disagree with them politically, but you're talking about them as though there's some like lab experiment, like there's some other thing. Do you, do you actually interact with the them? deplorables? Right. He found it so unrelatable because in Israel, obviously they have deep political division. And we talk a lot about that in the book. But it doesn't come at the expense of, of feeling like a sense of community with your fellow citizens. So one of the most important things that, that is that glue that you're zeroing in on is most Israelis serve in some kind of national service. It's the, it's the military. There's some civilian alternatives, but it's, it's mostly the military. And it's two or three years unless they go on for officer training at formative ages, 18, 19, 20, 21, around there. And all, all of these people who come out of the military more or less develop some extraordinary skills, which is like gold. It's phenomenal for building companies and startups. And okay, mm -hmm. that's part of the value. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I hope people think about we and you alluded to it before. What's going on today on college campuses is like so disorienting for not only the outburst of anti-Semitism, but just the sense that it's not clear to me that many of these elite colleges are making our kids smarter <laughs> or more curious or more mm -hmm. thoughtful. Fascinating. You are donating the proceeds of this book to a group called Zaka? Zaka. It's a few organizations. Zaka is one, which has done some amazing relief work and has also, um, they're doing a lot of, sadly, there's a lot of work to be done with mm -hmm. these burials and the, helping the families deal with all of it. Many people and families are going to multiple, have been going to multiple funerals. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's just, mm -hmm. it, it really is, um, overwhelming to um, think about. So, and I, I'm sure there'll be other projects that I support, but, uh, and, I, and maybe I should, you know, advertise them, you know, so. I'm just curious because uh, it was an incredible effort to write the book. Yeah. And the meaning of the book changes yeah. after the attack. To me, it did. And I think it's wonderful that you wrote it. Um, I think it's a great tribute to your heritage. And you. um, I don't want to hear that my friends feel vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I understand that you do, and I think other people need to hear it too. So thanks for joining us on Thank the Fox you. News Rundown thanks podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks. Appreciate it, Dana.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Jason Rance. What's on your mind? Seattle residents have once again voted to raise the cost of housing to lower housing costs. If it sounds contradictory, you must be new to the Emerald City. Consider the Seattle housing levy as a case in point. A colossal program nearing $1 billion, earmarked for the construction of affordable housing. This levy did not simply extend a pre-existing tax from 2016. It more than tripled the tax rate from $0.14 to $0.45 per $1,000 of assessed property value. Predictably, the levy passed with early voting results showing a commanding 66% support. While it helps build some affordable housing, it also increases the cost of housing. Homeowners will see their property tax bills surge by roughly $400 annually. Tenants won't be spared either, as these tax hikes are passed along via increased rents. This is in a city where the median house price has soared to $800,000 and where record high fatal overdoses and a surge in homicides have marred the previous year's statistics. This trend mirrors the distressing trajectory of other Democrat-run cities, where residents pay a premium to live in areas that are deteriorating thanks to extreme leftist policies. As I write about extensively in my new book, What's Killing America? Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities? The progressive conviction is that housing is an inalienable human right. They use that belief to justify heavy-handed governmental interference in the housing market. Democrats' response is to pour tax dollars into affordable housing. But there's a problem with relying on the wealthy to pay their fair share, whatever that is. They leave. Washington Democrats passed a statewide capital gains tax, managing to convince an eager state Supreme Court to redefine income taxes— which are unconstitutional here, so that they can get more tax dollars from the wealthy. They bizarrely claimed it's an excise tax before justifying their position by arguing their new definition is necessary because the state's upside-down tax system perpetuates systemic racism by placing a disproportionate tax burden on BIPOC residents. Moreover, Seattle wants to implement an additional capital gains tax, and Democrats in the legislature, they're eyeing a wealth tax. Democrats believe the homelessness crisis is due to the high cost of homes, but they also believe housing developers and landlords are wealthy, privileged, and greedy. This perspective has led to punitive regulations and a reliance on government agencies to manage housing the right way. Yet, there's scant evidence to suggest that these measures are making the housing market more accessible. On the contrary, the situation continues to deteriorate. Maybe if they stopped helping so much, let the market operate with fewer impediments, we'd have housing for everyone. But Seattle voters seem eager to keep getting in the way of progress with more taxes. I'm Jason Rance. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.